Welcome back to The Bilbao Effect, the podcast series asking the question, can culture boost economic development? I'm your host, Seth O'Farrell, FDI's global investment reporter. And in this episode, we'll be looking at the Tate Modern in London. One of the most emblematic and recognisable art museums in the world, the Tate Modern needs little introduction. It has been celebrated for heralding a non-chronological approach to the display of modern and contemporary art. And its installations in the Turbine Hall have become legendary. From Oliafor Eliasson's Weather Project and Rachel White-Reed's Cubes to the current display of Anika Yee's Floating Air Robes. The Tate Modern's industrial surroundings were no accident. When the Tate had outgrown its collection at Millbank, where the Tate Britain now stands, it chose the Bankside Power Station as a site for its new art gallery. Originally designed by Sir Giles Gilbert Scott, the power station was completed in the 1960s but decommissioned in the 1980s. Swiss architects Herzog and de Mouron were employed to turn the building into a gallery with the turbine hall becoming the entrance and boiler rooms, the gallery spaces. Touted as being a museum for the new millennium, the Tate Modern has become an inherent part of London's cityscape and cultural scene, and is one of the UK's biggest tourist attractions, bringing in an estimated £100 million a year in economic benefits. But parallel to its cultural prowess, the Tate Modern has also witnessed considerable urban regeneration efforts on London's waterfront, creating a sort of Tate effect. With me to discuss all of this is Francis Morris, director of the Tate Modern. Francis was also head of displays in the early 2000s, curating the new gallery spaces when they first opened 20 years ago. She's a formidable voice on the global art circuit, and it is an honour and privilege to welcome her to the Bill Effect. Francis, welcome to the show. An honour and a privilege to be with you. <laughs> and you're also very exciting. You're my first live guest for the wow. Bill Effect. <laughs> Um, as I mentioned in my introduction, you've long been involved in the Tate and you were there at the very beginning when the Tate Modern first opened. Can you first walk us through a bit the plans to find and develop the site? Yes, of course. Um, gosh, I feel very nostalgic for that era when everything <laughs> seemed possible. Um, we'd massively grown, outgrown our site at Millbank. Uh, there was a kind of a huge time lag between the, the feel of the museum, what we could do with the art and the current state of contemporary art uh, in Britain at that time, you know, it was the era of the YBAs and this rising generation of amazing black British artists. Um, people were working video and digital and, and a kind of a, a whole new world was out there and we couldn't deal with it at Millbank in our old kind of um, uh, citadel museum. So trustees took the decision in the early 19 in early 1990s that we should expand. And original ideas were to expand on the site, but very quickly it became apparent that we needed a second site in London. And uh, there were various parameters. It had to be quite close to Millbank. You know, we were we were a child of Millbank. We were the baby, so we needed to be nurtured by the, the, the mother institution. We also had recently opened a major storage facility uh, on the Old Kent Road, so we were looking for sites, you know, in those vicinities. Um, at that time, we had a group of uh, trustees, including two very strong artist voices, Michael Craig Martin and Bill Woodrow, and they took it upon themselves to do a trip to see other new museums. Of course, this is an era where all across Europe and North America, people have got museum plans, and it was not so long after the... Uh, the launch of Pompidou Centre, for example, mm -hmm. in Paris, and, and Bilbao was already on its way. And they came back with serious um, concerns about new builds and a real interest in us finding a 
uh, an existing building. And we had history there with our development of Tate Liverpool, where we'd taken a, um, a warehouse site in the docks. And that had been enormously successful, both mm-hmm. uh, as an institution, but also culturally in the city. So there were a number of ambitions coming together to find a space for art, to impact in the city, to build culture for London, for Londoners, and to do something that would have a kind of statement of intent for the future of uh, uh, contemporary art uh, and the public for art in London. Um, but it was we, important that it was a, a brownfield site. It was very important that it was a brownfield It had to be a brownfield site because we were looking at central London. Mm-hmm. You know, it really needed to be in the centre. We looked at a, a number of sites that didn't have buildings on them that we could have used. Jubilee Gardens, for example. Mm-hmm. I think we looked in Greenwich, Vauxhall, King's Cross. Interestingly, all, all areas that had subsequently had developments. And we looked at a number of specific buildings. We looked at Alexandra Palace and we looked at Battersea Arts Centre and then we landed on the moon. which And the moon was um, Bankside Power Station and it was just like um, a, a building so prominent and so visible that it was absolutely invisible. Mm-hmm. I had was a frequent visitor to Southwark. As a child, I sang in Southwark Cathedral. Um, there was the, the tourist landmarks of the city. I'd never heard of Bankside Power Station. But um, it was a glorious edifice, um, controversial, uh, derided by some, loved by others, on a, on a fantastically large site, seven acres in pretty central London, right on the river, opposite St Paul's. It was a kind of no-brainer. And difficult to imagine also without the Millennium Bridge, which now sort of provides an entranceway to... Yes, but I mean, I, mean, I think you have already... Listen, this is the, the 1990s, the Millennium was coming... There was already talk about what were the projects that um, the UK would fund and support to mark that millennium, to celebrate the past, but also to kind of anticipate the future. So there was this growing plan for cultural development along the Thames. Um, I mean, not uh, you know, uh, not far after us, plans uh, became apparent for the Millennium Wheel. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the London Eye, um, the 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 connection, the bridge, the Millennium Bridge came on track. The Globe had just was just going to open in I think ninety seven. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a there was a kind of we knew that we would be part of a, a, a articulation of of a, a, a generation. There were plans for a, a, a tube in Southwark. So all the, the, the things that we needed, the kind of infrastructure to bring people in and other attractions to lure people to the area seemed to provide sufficient kind of robust context mm-hmm. for Bankside to be a goer. Mm-hmm. And so it was touted, as I mentioned in my introduction, as the, a museum for the new millennium. Um, has that changed, that meaning, from from then to now? Well, it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, people are still talking and writing books about what does the Museum of the 21st Century look like? Mm. And I think that is still a valid question because we're always, you know, we're always thinking about what next. But I think what was interesting about the ambitions for Tate Modern is that the ambition was not to replicate what we felt was an outmoded model, the, the kind of 19th century classical museum, mm-hmm. and not to replicate not just its its look and its structure and its architecture and its feel, but not to, re- to replicate the kind of structures and systems and assumptions and values that underpinned it. And I think you could see that most tangibly in, in the new Tate Modern, in the way we moved away from a chronology. We moved away from that sense that history is a given, that, it, that it's a canon, uh, that it will always unfold in the same way. 
Another thing that we did is we decided, unlike most other museums, to do, to do away with the kind of formal divisions between media. Mm-hmm. And another key thing was, I think, too, which was connected to both of them, to accept that at the beginning of a new century, it simply wasn't possible to tell one story. Mm-hmm. And that really was it, was, it was about museums or our museum catching up with three decades of amazing work in the humanities. We were responding to feminism. We were responding to kind of post-colonial studies. We wanted to give a voice to black British artists. We wanted to have a, a broader conversation around art. And above all, we didn't want to rape replace one system with another. So there was right at the beginning this idea that we would not have a permanent display, that Tate Modern would be a place for permanently dis- permanent disruption. So almost like a lab hour. I mean, this sounds very idealistic, but we would mm-hmm. we would look and think again and again and try things out. And one of the really amazing things, I think, about being in Tate Modern over this last 20 years is that sense that we can change the way we do things, that we can reflect and move on, has been continuous. And actually, I think there's a really, that is a very powerful message about what the 21st century needed. It needed responsiveness. It needed flexibility. It needed to be attuned to the moment and to re-value and re-evaluate what you do all mm-hmm. the time. And staying on that theme then, um, what was the regeneration impact of the museum on the surrounding area, on the waterfront? Is it... You mentioned there's a lot of effort that sort of, you know, that the tape was a part of. It was by no means its own one single catalyst. But did the museum itself have an impact on the surrounding area, do you think? I, I think it had undoubtedly had an immediate and pretty radical impact. I mean, when we when we first went to Tate Modern, there was nothing. There was a, a greasy spoon. There was a bar. I mean, within within weeks, months of uh, us arriving uh, and, and, of course, with roots that go back into the period of its development, there was a, a, a pretty significant expansion of the kind of commercial and business offer. I think over the first year, um, I mean, a huge number of people poured into to, to Bankside as visitors, and that had a massive impact on um, on just the economy of Southwark. I think in Bankside, something like 50 to 70 million uh, ancillary spend came from visitors in the first year. So uh, on the back of Tate Modern came a whole a range of um, independent um, uh, kind of entrepreneurial initiatives. But what was really, I think, um, really telling was that Southwark as a council and Bankside as a neighbourhood were both extremely invested in ensuring that the development was appropriate and sensitive and, and kind of culturally powerful. And that gave us a, a, a really great opportunity from you know, several years before we opened to be very involved in conversations about what the neighbourhood would feel like. Um, so we were particularly right from the start um, conscious that uh, we needed to serve the local community, the neighbours, who the, the, the living population, as well as to support the growing and burgeoning business population. And that, I think, one of the things we felt very uh, uh, attentive to was uh, the need to uh, build public landscape, for example. I mean, Bankside is an incredibly aggressively urban neighbourhood. So our landscape very much became part of a kind of this notion of an urban forest that we worked on over several years with uh, with Better Bankside, which was the business district that was set up in the, in, in the wake of our development. Can you tell me a bit about that, the Bankside Urban Forest Initiative and what that what that meant? Well, I, I think it very simply meant uh, recognising that there was very little uh, open space 
uh, in the neighbourhood and that every little bit of urban space mattered. Uh, and so there was um, a piece of planning that was undertaken uh, in collaboration between us and local cons constituents and stakeholders working with a number of different architectural practices to design sensitively and ensure that 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 we that as the neighborhood developed we would preserve and uh, love and pay attention to every bit of open green space that there was i think one of the it's one of the success stories but also and we may come to this later it's one of the things that you know there is a kind of in all these neighborhoods in london a creeping privatization which which continues to threaten that mm -hmm. and so can we call this a, a Tate effect? Is in contrast to the in contrast to the Bill Bauer effect? Is there something specific about the Tate effect? Do you think, given what we've just said? Well, I, yeah, I mean, Bill Bauer, I th think, clearly had a major international impact on a city. You have to see Tate Modern as part of uh, a, 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 an overall development across London, and whether how significant Tate Modern was. Uh, Outside of that is quite difficult to tell. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's become, it has certainly become a, a huge international icon and it's put London on the cultural map. I think that part of Southwark, North Southwark, the continuation of the South Bank, which was the whole Millennium Mile, would have happened whatever. And there mm. were, you have to remember that historically there were a number of uh, quite strong ideas around how to develop um, uh the power station itself. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I wouldn't want I wouldn't want to overclaim for that, but undoubtedly, uh, we were part of you know, we were part of a really strong collaboration that was a collaboration between public and private, a collaboration with many individuals who felt passionate about the neighbourhood mm -hmm. and corporations. And I think in that regard, it's a very successful uh, example of a kind of um, uh, let's call it Tate Modern effect. Okay, the Tate Modern effect. And you mentioned located in Southwark, which is also one of the most deprived boroughs in the country, if I'm not mistaken. So I wondered, what, what has Tate Modern done to engage with the local community specifically? Well, I think we've, Tate Modern, we, one of the first appointments, long before I was appointed to the curatorial uh, project, was um, a, a local community liaison officer. And there was very much a, um, a feeling that we should not parachute into this neighbourhood mm -hmm. where we had no historic connections at all um, and there were you know there were long-standing vested interests um, the globe was the kind i think global very worried about us coming because they were the kind of landmark mm. um institution and there were you know at that time there were as you say southwark was a very deprived borough still is a very deprived borough and around uh the power station itself there were pockets of deep deprivation and it was very important that we should make friends with those communities and keep them up to speed and involve them in the conversations. And so uh, we had this great officer in place who had you know, set up, I think we had an open space, we had a visitor centre. It was very, very transparent for that time. And as soon as myself and Ivana Blaswick, now director at the Whitechapel, were appointed as to the curatorial team and a, a learning curator, Cara Howell, um, our first task was not to think about 2000. It was to think about what do we do in 1998. So, for example, we had an open submission um, exhibition of, for local artists, for artists who lived within a mile of Tate Modern. We did some big public programmes on uh, the front of the um, uh, building. We had 
we projected film programmes that were we've absolutely reached out to local communities to come. Carahal worked with the dance group Coralai, and, and at a time when it was a it was a quite a scary place, um, the walkway at that time. So so we tried to begin to make relationships uh, with local people and sort of test out the way that people would want to work with us. So we did a great project with the artist Mark Dion working with um, seniors from community centres in the neighbourhood, but also with students from uh, Southwark College. Mm-hmm. And this was a sort of archaeological dig uh, on, the, on, on, on the, the beach at Bankside and wow. the beach at Millbank. Uh, that, worked... that was in what year? The that was in 98, 99. OK, just before the museum itself yeah. opened. Yeah, so, there's, so we embedded kind of art practice and the idea of a museum without walls... Mm-hmm. And like a museum beyond the museum, before then the museum came into the building in order, in a way, it's like a lure or mm-hmm. make friends so that then they want to come to the party. And did it work? Has has over the last now fast forward to twenty years, has it has um has that has it had a net you know positive impact on the community? Do you think? And are there other ways that you can sort of speak to that? I think I think I, positive is an odd word. We've had a continuous relationship with our neighbours. Uh, and their neighbours are very diverse groups mm-hmm. of communities. And ha- the, the neighbourhood profile has changed massively. And that's one of, I would say, arguably a negative benefit. But mm. we've never stopped having um, a relationship with those neighbours. They're often very vocal. They're often very critical. All weekend I get e- <laughs> emails from neighbours <laughs> complaining about skateboarders. Um, and I get uh, emails from neighbours complaining about the noise from the pleasure cruises going up and down the river. But we also get neighbours who come in and say, we want to be your friends. We, we, want, we want you to do things for us. And so, and I like the idea that those, the, the relationships are abrasive. Um, we listen and we respond when we can. And then there are one or two things that we do together. We have a community garden, which, uh, which staff and community share. And it's an absolute oasis, totally secret and has a little spoken password which I'm not going to share with your listeners but oh well so the neighbors are very much part of the conversation they are the first people to come in to see when we do major projects they were the first people invited in uh, after lockdowns and we have named our boiler house Natalie Bell after a community leader who's an amazing woman who is very involved in Coin Street Workshop just along the river. And her name is just as valued and celebrated as the name of Len Blavatnik, who was the great financial philanthropist who funded our Blavatnik building. And speaking about neighbours and indeed the Blavatnik building, um, and also if we fast forward a bit to the sort of encroachment um, of uh, sort of privatisation. There was a lawsuit a couple of years ago between the property owners of Neo Bankside next to the Tate and Tate where the residents complained that the new viewing platform in the Switch House was invasion of privacy. Is this an example of where the sort of openness that you talk about, the the museum without walls, (laughs) quite literally, um, collides with contiguous private enterprises or, or private commercial and adventures yes i mean i i think i'm absolutely and it's deeply problematic and we have a very very small number of people i mean really i think three four five individuals in this wonderful rogers development near bankside who deeply feel deeply imperiled by the um the gaze of uh our many millions of visitors who visit our 360 degree 
uh, wraparound viewing platform because the only view of <laughs> uh, Westminster is through the building, their buildings. And of course, they are living in iconic uh, architectural edifices that speak to the 21st century. And there will always be, um, we will always rub up against uh, tensions between the public and private and the, and the private perception of their what matters to them and their privacy and our, my absolute resolute commitment that we as a public institution are there to serve the public and the lawsuit continues. But it, is that a risk, a, a greater risk going forward where there'll just be more antagonism between private residents and museums? I'm not just talking about the Tate Modern, I mean elsewhere also as as the this is a sort of the flip side of the Bill Bauer effect, if you will, of the Bill, Bill Bauer effect we talk about in, a, in very positive terms that culture can boost economic development, but also, of course, economic development also brings with it uh, private buildings, you know, well, big fancy apartments. Well, it's complicated. I mean, I you know we 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 are, we work very closely with Southwark Council, who are brilliant. I have nothing but respect for them. It's a very poor borough. It still is. I mean, it's 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 no longer um, you know the sixth most deprived. It might be the sixteenth most deprived, but it has it is a really challenging uh, part of London, and with many many needy people. Now, the kind of uh, economic developments that they can make in North Southwark along the river on the back of what we've done at Tate Modern, and because they are on the river and have extraordinary views of St Paul's, is incredibly important to the borough in facilitating regeneration uh, and supporting elsewhere. needy communities elsewhere in the borough. And I, 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 it's really important, however much I regret the those massive developments, which I think do denude the neighbourhood of texture. And actually, they're mostly empty, so they're not full Indeed. of people. You don't see many people. In <laughs> I mean, those they flats. are they are investment properties. Mm. I can see that the the logic um, from the borough's point of view. I mean, the real tragedy is planning laws in this country, mm. and that there isn't an overall sense of how we develop our neighbourhoods and how we ensure that there are mixed developments and the sufficient open space, and that these that all neighbourhoods welcome all people. Mm-hmm. So I think there is a regret there, but it's not that we haven't um, done our best to influence those developments. And ironically, the neobank side development, which is now, um, you know, we've just been in the Supreme Court with those neighbours, was uh, was developed in very close collaboration between the architectural practices and planning. It was meant we thought it would be it was an exemplary move forward. Um, it, it is simply the fact that the residents in those buildings do not feel that they should protect themselves by blinds or net curtains. Mm -hmm. We're talking about very privileged people. And if I have one worry about uh, the Bilbao effect, the Tate Modern effect, is that how do institutions that then become part of uh, economic and cultural regenerations prevent themselves from privileging the privileged? Mm. And... Speaking about that a little bit more, and perhaps also about the way that the art world has changed or the way the funding models have changed, um, as as a public institution, the Tate Modern has become increasingly reliant on private funding, as is the case for many uh, national museums in this country. Um, and indeed, I'm sure will become more and more the case in Europe um, post-pandemic. Does that concern you too, that there's a, there's a sort of semi-privatisation or that funds have to come from private sources um, also just to just to have 
exhibit exhibitions, to show exhibitions. Well, for Tate, there's nothing new in that because although we had um, you know really supportive funding from the Millennium uh, Commission for uh, Tate Modern. Uh, from the early 90s onwards, Tate was sort of almost a kind of leader in being entrepreneurial in funding and fundraising its own growth. And it is absolutely classic sort of victim of the neo of neoliberalism and mm. its success is that now we face this, as the, the public purse shrinks, mm. uh, the proportion of, of fundraising we have to take on ourselves gets bigger and bigger. And, but it is, it is, I think it has to be said that the public purse does not come without strings attached. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all funding comes with, um, you know, a baggage of uh, requirements and KPIs and messages. And so we're in a a kind of, um, (laughs) we're in a a perfect storm of conflicting interests. What what worries me more than anything else is the the, the, um, uncertainty and roller coaster impact of being overly reliant on both self-generated income in the form of ticket sales and funders and you're we're very vulnerable and it means that planning long term can be very difficult i mean take modern sort of in a very good place at the moment because we have very very great long-term commitment from hyundai across two major projects and uh, we also i think across tate have an incredibly robust membership base so the question is, moving forward, can how can we create a funding base that that does not present us with the kind of conflicts of interest that currently museums are confronting in you know the reputational association with, I mean, over the years BP mm. caused us great anxiety, but also the Sacklers at the moment, for example. How can we how can we uh, protect ourselves from too close association with? Uh, um, yeah, contentious uh, funders, and, and also ethically, you know, keep that distance. It's, it's not just mm. the reputation; it's that we strongly believe we need uh, we, we need a strong moral compass in what we do. So there you is a, strings that come attached, yeah, basically in public funds and in private funds. Absolutely, but but there there must be a new way of doing it. So part of like the museum of the twenty first century is how do you make that happen? Mm-hmm. And it may be that we can't continue with the growth rate. That's unlikely, but the challenge is how do we switch, change the business model to invest more of our resources in what we really value and less just in the money-making machine? Mm-hmm. And I, it's a fascinating and complex um, rethinking of the model, but it's something that we're absolutely up for and we're not doing it on our own. Mm-hmm. And do you think that post-pandemic then there'll be more focus on sorts of things that we're discussing, local engagement and sort of potential reputational risk over the kind of the glitz and glam of of the of the porousness between the art the museum world and the art market world. Yeah, so between um, freeze and you know all these things that we've seen over the last 10 years, yeah. for instance. I mean absolutely. And you, I love that word porous. When we opened Tate Modern in 2000, there was a porosity and it wasn't between the art market and the museum. It was between the the public, the city and the museum. Mm. And the turbine hall was envisaged as a, as a kind of street to bring the city in. Mm. And that is still there. And over the last... There's green shoots of hope here. The last couple of years, it's been an amazing place that um, kind of calm activists have come and used. And we felt very happy to welcome them. You know, Culture Declares and Ben Ockrey, the poet, did an amazing project. It was... A, absolutely pitch perfect work of art but it just 
it happened. We hosted it. So at that porosity, I think we need to switch from the, the sense of the fact that we'd be permeated by the art market and commerce, switch to revalue what we do. And there are different registers of value at play in the museum. There's the financial value, there's the aesthetic value, there's the instrumental value. So the key things I think we have to think about in light of the fact that COVID has made us vulnerable, but climate and ecological emergency are making us even more vulnerable. So how can we be in light of that? We have to, we have to, we can't just be about art. We have to be outside that bubble. And we're not, we are outside it in this building and in that place. So how can we be responsible, really responsible in a kind of planetary sense? How can we be uh, responsive to local people and their needs? And I think that's, that for me is very exciting. And, and we have all the potential to do that, but we need to, the, the third R is the resourcing. Mm. And it's about that rebalancing. But nonetheless, you think you're going to almost return to the sorts of initiatives that you that were first there in the late 90s when Tate Modern was first sort of formed, that there'll be more active engagement with the community away from the art market. If you sort of sketch out a broader narrative of the last 20 years. Well, I would like, yes, I think I think that is the case. I mean, I, I'll give you an example. Um, we uh, during the summer. We made a project with uh, funding from Uniqlo, so mm -hmm. that's a commercial sponsor, but that was uh, entirely focused on families, intergenerational audiences from the local community. It cost uh, probably um, a third, less than a third, of the uh, budget of a temporary exhibition, a temporary exhibition of loans principally serving um adult audiences with degrees, so the privilege to pay tickets, a free offer in the Turbine Hall over the summer, entirely collaborative, participatory, but based in deep research into and based on a Japanese project made in the 1950s by the avant-garde group um, Gutai, informed by research from our research centre, over 300,000 young people, intergenerational kids and their parents, from I think six months to 90 years old, uh, all participated, the most diverse in terms of socioeconomic and race audience that we've ever had at Tate Modern. Absolutely demonstrate, demonstrate that you can, you can shift the engagement. We just have to have the power to do it, the, the willpower to do it. And you mentioned climate change. Um... And if we think again about how the, the sort of the Tate Modern effect is something or the Tate Modern is bringing us into the new millennium, um, to what extent does climate feature as, as the sort of highest concern or climate change feature on the highest concern of the Tate Modern's programme or, or engagement with the world going forward? Well, I, for me, it's possibly the most important thing. And one of the most important, one of the reasons it is, is that climate is not just about emissions. It's about the intersections of all sorts of um, planetary crises from race equality um, to uh, social equity to um, uh, north-south global inequality. It, it, it's where it all impacts and climate, the climate emergency will highlight and exacerbate all those things. And we're forget the art bit for the moment. We are an institution that has spent 21 years building uh, relationships all over the world and especially in areas that are going to be 
majorly impacted by climate, whether it's Latin America or, or Africa or across South Asia. Um, and we have friends, professional friends, we have patron friends, we have artist friends who are part of our global network. And at this moment in time, we in a crisis, you have to you have to take care of your friends. So the idea of the I mean, the idea of the local is for us is is a distributed local. We have Bankside as our neighbourhood, but we have neighbourhoods in in Dhaka, in Bangladesh, or uh, in Rio, and 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 therefore we have to think: How do we adjust our behaviours and our activities to uh, both um, uh, you know adapt, mitigate, and adapt? So that we we future, so that culture continues to be relevant. Otherwise, we're just dust. Mm-hmm. And there's a powerful metaphor, I suppose, in having you housed in a power station <laughs> for the for the next part of the 21st century, where climate, as you say, the climate emergency will become more and more important, um, and the ways that local communities and global communities are interlinked on that basis. Yeah, I mean, she, I mean, isn't it interesting, the metaphors that come out of the power station? And uh, there's a great TV series when we opened called Power Into Art. But you have to remember mm-hmm. that the power station was decommissioned in the 1980s because of the, well, the price of oil, but also it was a, a big polluting, you know, thing. So... You know, there's a horrible metaphor there. If we don't, you know, uh, we really need to be part of the greening, the cleansing. Mm. And uh, we need to be um, absolutely key to the solution and not to be just uh, 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 something that goes on polluting with our high emissions and our ill-conceived messages. I mean, you know, it's a bit of a... uh, there's a danger that you're still a, a, a walking power station. Is that what you're saying? No, I think I think it's just what do you do with that power? Right. Where do you deploy your energy? And we need to deploy our energy in a way that's green, that's positive, that's healing, mm-hmm. that uh, promotes well-being, that, mm-hmm. that, that, that is an exemplar uh, across the world that's welcoming and that, that, that is a giver, not just a taker. Francis Morris, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to FDI Podcast, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, we're heading to the north of the UK, where we'll be speaking to Claire McColgan, Director of Culture Liverpool. Hope you can join us then. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.